Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Genesis. It's great to have you here today. Um, I don't know how many of you know the great comedian Nate Bargatze. Uh, he talks about how uh, COVID has ruined your ability to cough in public, you know. Uh, uh, same for allergy sufferers, all right? Like we are just, we are under the spotlight. So you'll have to bear with me as I'm a little more base uh, this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, take it and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. My wife Jenny and I have made it our goal uh, to try and get our kids, as long as they're living under our roof, to uh, all the states, you know, to as many states as possible, again, while they're still living with us. And that means we get to take some great trips. We've seen some beautiful places over these last years together, but it also means that if you're going to get to 50 states, you've got to figure out how in the world you're getting to Kansas, you know, and Oklahoma and places like that. And so, while many of you enjoyed Destin and Gulf Shores these past couple of weeks, the Moomaws went to Wichita. Yeah. <laughs> Spring break 2021 uh, in Wichita, sure enough. But we made the best of it. We had a great time. Uh, we actually flew into Fort Worth and walked around some college campuses uh, like Baylor down in Waco and uh, Texas Christian University. We saw the Oklahoma City bombing memorial while we were passing through Oklahoma. We ate some good food along the way too. We ate kolaches out of a gas station uh, just north of Waco that a friend told us about. They were wonderful fried pies in central Oklahoma and some of the best pizza you'll ever eat in Wichita. I mean, if you need a reason to go there, we can tell you about a pizza place. But uh, lots of great memories for us, three more states for our kids. Uh, we keep track of them with this map in our home that a good friend gave to us and color those states in as we get to more and more. My wife Jenny only has three left. Uh, I've got two, Hawaii, all right, still got to get to Hawaii, and Delaware. Like, I, I don't know how I was so close to Delaware and missed it, but somewhere in there, I got to figure out how to get to Delaware. But, but our great trip almost turned pretty sour. We were just outside of Oklahoma City. Uh, I was merging onto the interstate, coming down the ramp. As I got down to the end of the, of the ramp, there was a car at a dead stop trying to merge into the traffic. Pretty sure from driver's ed, that's not how you're supposed to do it. But they were stopped, and so what are you going to do? And so we came to a complete stop behind them, and this person's watching the traffic. Well, finally, they let off the brake to go. I do a quick look to my left just to check traffic, begin to accelerate when my, life, my wife lets out this horrific scream, which means I immediately slam on the brakes because the person in front of us had stopped once again. Thankfully, we did not hit the back of the Mercedes-Benz that was in front of us, all right? Add to it the Dodge Caravan rental that I'm driving. We were spared in that moment, but an accident, like even a minor one, would have ruined the trip uh, for me. I mean, it would have ruined those few days that we had away together. Um, I, I've been in an accident twice where I've been at fault. Both were in similar situations. You'd think I'd learn, you know, where you look for a moment, you turn back, and, and, and it's too late. But it's amazing when you think about it what can happen when you take your eyes off of what's directly in front of you? Uh, it's amazing what can happen when you lose focus. Uh, if we're not careful, if we pay, forget to pay attention, like even the little things uh, can over time bring some great harm and pain into our lives. It's true with driving, but it's true with just about anything. Uh, this, this applies to just about anything. I mean, it, it's true with your eating and sleeping habits. You know, again, if we lose focus, if we get sloppy, if we get a little careless, uh, it's certainly how we spend money. If you don't manage money wisely, one poor choice here, one here, 
Uh, you lose focus. You fall, fall into a mess. Uh, the same could be said of, of alcohol usage, um, even your sexual desires and, and how you, you, you maintain control with those. I mean, lose focus, get careless, and you and I, we're going to regret where some of those decisions ultimately lead us. Now, if you've been following along in your Bible reading plan, again, we're reading through the, the Bible together as a church family. Uh, if you're reading with us, great, keep going. If you fell off, now's a good time to forget about what you've missed and just pick up and read with us, all right? Restarts are allowed here at Genesis Church, all right? But we've been reading together, and if you've been reading, you've been a witness of some incredible sin and pain that overwhelmed the people of Israel. What caused it? They took their eyes off the Lord. They lost focus. Uh, they, they, they lost attention, and they went looking to other things to bring them satisfaction. And while everyone could share in the blame, First and Second Kings highlight the rise and the fall of different kings and how their influence affected the people of the land positively and negatively. Take Saul, for example. He was the first king of Israel, uh, tall, dark, and handsome, but that's about all he had going for him because Saul lacked integrity. Uh, he liked to cut corners. Uh, make decisions that would only serve him. He had no boundaries in his life. You could say he had no heart for God, no heart. Uh, he died. David took over as king. Scripture teaches that David was very different because unlike Saul, David had a whole heart for God. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't have flaws. I mean, he made mistakes with his life. He got sidetracked at times, but for the most part, all of his attention was on serving the God of heaven. And after David died, his son Solomon became king in Israel, ruled over the land for 40 years. And Solomon was well known for a variety of reasons. We read about him in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23, that King Solomon was great in riches and wisdom than all of the other kings on the earth. Sounds great, right? Doing well for himself. Unfortunately, all of this wealth and power is going to contribute to his decline. We get a little hint of that in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, when we read, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Uh, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Melech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he didn't follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And so Solomon was half-hearted at best, uh, meaning he wavered. He was kind of one foot in, one foot out with God. He turned to God as long as it was convenient and as long as it didn't interfere with the other things that he had going on in his life. We're not like that at all, are we? I'm not. Like, we never drift. I never drift. We never lose focus. Things like money and uh, success and power and sexual desire, like those things can't influence us, right, or get in the way of our relationship with God, or can they? Well, if you keep reading in First and Second Kings, you know that, that God is going to judge Solomon for his disobedience. The, the kingdom of Israel will be torn into two uh, that would oppose one another. The worst part is that Solomon took his eyes off the Lord, but not just Solomon, but the people would ultimately do that as well. And they're going to start looking for their satisfaction in many other things. And that's where I want to pick up the story with you today. First Kings chapter 18. I want to take you to a place called Mount Carmel. And here's a map of Israel. Uh, Mount Carmel is located here to the north. Uh, Jerusalem would be down here in the central part 
of Israel. There's a saying in Israel that north is wet, west is wet, and high is wet. And so Mount Carmel is at an elevation of about 1,555 feet in the northwestern part of Israel. It sits at the very far west end of the Jezreel Valley. And so there's this beautiful valley that extends all the way back up here to the Sea of Galilee. I took a picture from there a few years ago when I was able to visit our team hiked to the top of Mount Carmel. Here's the turnaround view back looking out over the Jezreel Valley in the Sea of Galilee off in the distance where Jesus would have spent most of his time and so much teaching. I, I want you to keep this picture in mind as you think about this fertile place. All right, Mount Carmel was known as this fertile, fertile place and how devastating it was because they were in the midst of a severe drought that threatened not only to devastate Mount Carmel, but all of Israel. Add to it the war and the division uh, that had caused this kingdom to split into two. Again, the northern kingdom or Israel and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And for the nation of Israel, the prevailing question in the midst of this drought was this one. Would Israel worship and obey the one true God? Would they keep their eyes focused on him even in the difficult times? Or would they turn and serve and follow the numerous false gods of their enemies? Who are you going to trust when things get tough, when things get a little complicated, uh, when chaos sets in, who are you going to trust? Well, the king of Israel at this time was a guy by the name of Ahab. And Ahab, when you think about him, is really just a pansy. Uh, and he was sort of half-hearted, maybe in a big way about God. He sort of worshiped God. He named ki his kids names that sort of reflected a devotion to God. But his greatest downfall was that he was married to an evil woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel made the Wicked Witch of the West or Bellatrix Lestrange look like a homecoming queen. You know, I mean, you know, just... You know, I mean, this, Jezebel was an evil person. And because Jezebel worshipped the Canaanite god Baal, uh, he had, she had every intention of making Baal uh, worship kind of the state religion around Israel, even going so far as to execute most of Israel's faithful prophets. And King Ahab, her husband, did do anything about it. Well, it was around this time that God raised up a man by the name of Elijah. And Elijah's sole mission was to get people focused on God again, to get their eyes back on the Lord, focused on the God of heaven. And what do you expect from a man whose name meant this? The Lord is God. Sounds like he's destined to it, right? I mean, this is his life, purpose, and mission. But his name is significant for more than one reason. I'll show you something else cool about that in just a few minutes. But again, Elijah's mission was to get the people of Israel focused on the one true God of heaven. And one of the most significant events in Elijah's life, and really in the Old Testament, comes out of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is kind of ground zero, center stage for an epic showdown where God is going to prove himself to his people once again. Let's pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so it may or may not be different than what you're reading, but here's what we find. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. When Ahab the king saw Elijah the prophet, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now again, remember that Israel's in the middle of this devastating drought. Ahab blames Elijah for it because in a previous conversation, Elijah warned Ahab that a drought was coming as a form of punishment. And so Ahab calls him a troubler, which seems like a weak insult, uh, if you ask me. But Ahab's got problems and he's got no one to point the finger at but Elijah. Verse 18 says, Elijah answered him, I've not troubled Israel, you have. 
and your father's house because you have what? Look what they've done. You have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table, which is a really large kitchen table, uh, to feed that many people at one time. But I want you to, uh, to see here that, you know, Elijah, he, he, he responds to Ahab's less than warm greeting by challenging him to a duel. Basically, Elijah says, you know what, me and the God of heaven... Versus Ahab, Jezebel, the prophets of Baal will all gather together at this one place, Mount Carmel, kind of the octagon, you know, for this big face-off. This is where the story gets pretty interesting. Verse 20. So, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together out at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping, interesting word there, between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, Elijah says, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. An interesting question. Um, but again, note the word limping. Some translations use the word waver. Uh, but the Hebrew, Hebrew literally means to sink or to, to limp along. What's Elijah's point? You all, you've been way too half-hearted at best. Again, the people of Israel had taken their eyes off the Lord. Um, you could say they've developed their own convenient theology that works well for them, which says, you know what, I'll, I'll take a little bit of God of heaven here, but when it comes to these areas of, of my life, I'll, I'll take a little more of, of Baal, whatever is convenient. I, I want to create this convenient faith system of my own, whatever works for me. And they were limping, as the text says, because of it limping back and forth between the two, which may not have seemed like a big deal to the people, but to God it is a big deal. This half-hearted, partial devotion is something that carries painful consequences. And if you were here last week, our disciple-making pastor, Ben, introduced us to 1 Kings, and he talked about the sin of, of idolatry, and, and he defined it like this, that an idol is anything that we make more important than God. Anything that you and I, that we make more important than God. Therefore, idolatry is worshiping and serving anything other than God. The scriptures teach this, that God created all things. That he made us, that he made this world that we live in, and he designed every single one of us to worship something. Do you know that? Like you were created in such a way that you are going to worship something. You are going to worship some things. We're all worshipers. And, and if the word worship just seems like a churchy word to you, look at it like this. Uh, the word worship, you could just think of it as worth-ship. It's kind of hard to say, but worship is whatever we put worth in. We, we worship the things that we would say are of value to us. A worshiper is someone who is, places worth in something, and so we worship those things that mean the most to us. We, we worship things that we can't imagine living without. Like, think about how quickly you and I, we go looking to so many other things to bring us satisfaction, to, to give us purpose and, and fulfillment. We look in so many different things. And, and my guess is that, that each of us, we'd be, we'd be tempted to respond in a, to this concept in a couple of different ways. Like you might say, well, well, I'm a Christian. I would never worship anything other than God, all right, which may be true. Or you would say, you know what, I'm not a religious person, and so I'm not about to worship anything. 
Well, let me just ask you this, because I think this applies to every single one of us. Well, what if we tried this? What, what, if, what if before you left this room today, I asked you to bring your mobile phone and just leave it here on the stage and just leave it here for the week? You can't take it with you. And uh, I saw somebody clapping over there. I'm with you. Uh, we just, we just shut the doors. I won't mess with it. I promise we won't do anything to your phone. But I want you to just try living without it for a while. What would that be like? Or instead of giving it to me, at least delete all of the social media apps on your phone. Uh, so no social media for, for the next few weeks. Could you live with something without something like that? Or while we're at it, how about all the streaming services or your favorite websites? Would you be willing to go without those for the next couple of weeks? Or how about this one? Let's all agree that we're not going to buy anything uh, non-essential until June. All right? No new clothes, no new shoes, no golf outings, no music, uh, no home decor, no bourbon, uh, no guns, just utilities, bread, and cauliflower. That's the only thing you can buy over the next 40 days, just the essentials. And just for good measure, let's all agree to take that extra money that we would have saved. You can give it to the charity of your choice, all right? But you've got to give it away. This one might do some of us in. Would you be willing to pull your kids out of all their spring and summer sports? this year. Now, we might be wondering what any of those things have to do with idols or idolatry and worship in our lives. Elijah would say, not so fast. Maybe everything, because we all worship different things. We all have idols. There are things that creep into our lives at different times, and, and we might say, you know, we worship God. I worship God, and, and that may be true. That may be what you chase after, but even if you're a follower of Jesus, like you're, you're still bound to allow these other things to take front and center in your life. We've all got idols that fight for our time and attention. Money certainly and quickly can become an idol for any one of us. I've struggled with idolatry when it comes to things like money. How about security and control of your life? control of your circumstances, your own personal health, safety. Um, we can make an idol out of our professional and personal accomplishments, our pursuit of those things. Your marriage can become an idol. Uh, your desire or pursuit for a relationship, a romantic relationship can become one. You can make your sexual identity an idol uh, if you choose. Um, concern for the environment can quickly become idolatry. Your diet, your kids, did I say money? I said money, right? Can become like an idol for all of us. And it's not, it's not that there are anything wrong with any or all of these, but when you take good things and you make them ultimate things, they become idols. An idol is anything that we allow to take the place of God in our lives. It's anything that we go looking to do for us what only God was ever intended to do. And so anytime we take our eyes off of God, anytime we go putting our faith in something else, I mean, if we follow the story, I mean, our response is the same. We're bound to drift, to drift towards other things or to limp, as Elijah says, because God made us for worship. He made you and I. We're going to worship something, you know, and oftentimes the temptation is to worship other things above him in this world when he loves us. Like he loves you. No matter who you are, no matter how long you've been around this church, a church, God, faith, religion, you might call yourself an atheist here today. Our God loves you. He loves you deeply and he created you and, and his ways are greater than ours. He knows what's best for us and he knows that there is nothing more satisfying. There is nothing like complete and absolute devotion for God. Think of it like this. Here's what we're up against. If you're not willing to choose between serving God or anything else, you and I, we're guaranteed to limp through life. 
the more and more other things take front and center, the more we're going to struggle, the more we're going to limp through life. And idols will always let you down. I mean, they offer a temporary satisfaction, all right, but they will let you down. They can only deliver for so long, and ultimately, and at the end, false gods will leave us empty. And according to Elijah, that's a terrible way to live. Look again at his words in in 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if you want Baal to be God of your life, then be sold out to him. Basically, quit wavering. I mean, who are you fooling? Quit trying to kid yourself. Quit quit cheating God and and cheating yourself, really. Like, you say you want to follow God, but then you turn and, and you look towards these other things. You can almost hear Elijah saying the same things to us. Just choose. Like, quit wavering. Quit wavering between things like God and money and success and your own personal security. Like it's either all of God or it's nothing. He expects our absolute and complete devotion. And look at how the people respond to him. It just says the people did not answer him a word. Crickets. They had no response. They had no response in this moment. So to that, Elijah says, well, I'm going to force you to choose. Verse 23 Here's what he says, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull. Let the prophets of Baal choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, lay it out on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, I'll call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he's God and all the people answer, it is well spoken. All right, so the The battle's about to take place, the duel, if you would. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us, but there was no voice. No one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And I love this next part, verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. It's trash talk, all right? Elijah is trash talking them. Here's what he said to them as they're trying to call down fire from heaven. Hey, get louder, all right? He's a God. He can hear you. Either he's musing or he's in a porta pot relieving himself or maybe he's in Wichita on spring break, you know? Or perhaps asleep and must be awakened. And they kept crying aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as the midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which was three o'clock in the afternoon, but no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Did I mention to you that Baal is the god of the weather too? He was the God of things like thunder and rain and lightning. And they tried and they tried. And when they needed Baal the most, he couldn't help them. In other words, Elijah's actions, Baal's inactions, prove that he was fake, unreliable. And you know what? False gods are like that. 
uh, the idols that we pursue, that we go chasing after, they're, they're like that. They provide a temporary satisfaction at best, but sadly they fail us every time. Pastor J.D. Greer sums it up like this. He says, false gods require strenuous dancing to please them. They keep pushing for more, to make you work harder, to do better, to obtain more. And when that doesn't work, you might resort to slashing yourself with crash diets, dangerous habits to get results, or to work harder to have more, only to slash your family and compromise your integrity in the process. In the end, Greer says this. He says, false gods only push you towards destruction. You see, Baal proved to be a phony. He didn't come through. And now it's time for God to have his moment. And the quick version of the story is this, that after the taunting, the trash talking of the prophets of Baal, Elijah divided the people to come over to his workstation where he got to work repairing the altar of the Lord, the one that had been torn down in the favor of Baal. Pick it up in verse 33. It says, he put the wood in order, Elijah, and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars, jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with the water. And so Elijah, he is soaking, you know, this sacrifice. The water's puddling up around it. And if the competition was all about seeing which God could start a fire, the fact that Elijah doused his sacrifice with water was either really foolish or he was extremely confident that his God would prevail. Verse 36 at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. What's Elijah chasing after? He wants to get the people focused on God again. He wants to bring them back to God. And then finally, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Can you hear the people shouting this name? This next one? Elijah. 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 The Lord, He is God. But they weren't chanting. They weren't shouting for Elijah. They were turning back. Repentance was taking place. Confession was happening. People were turning their hearts back to the Lord and God in His grace and mercy was welcoming them back. And if you keep reading the rest of the story, the prophets of Baal are destroyed. God's going to send rain on the land after a three-year drought. And then the story ends, at least this segment, with Elijah receiving supernatural strength to outrun Ahab's horse and chariot. I love the irony there that Ahab and the people were limping along away from God, but through his faith in God, Elijah was empowered to run and to not grow weary. What's it got to do with us? 
I think it's fair to say that we are living in the midst of a drought of our own, a spiritual one for sure. Think about this. Mount Carmel was this beautiful, amazing place, fertile, full of opportunity. You'd want to build a home there, all right? You'd want to raise your family there. You'd want your kids to go to school there, but the drought had been devastating. Add to it, the people took their eyes off the Lord, were giving their time and attention to things like Baal. Any similarities to America right now? I mean, I'm not saying it was easy for everyone, but rewind a little over a year ago and we were all kind of just doing life, weren't we? Marching along, going with the motions, living each day, living it up. Today, we're still creeping through this pandemic, still reeling from an embarrassing election year. The racism and violence in our country is real. There's so much anger, division, all of the hurt and fear. Friendships and churches are being split over things like politics and even a face mask. And so many of us, like the people in Elijah's story, just limping along. You know, when life gets hard, it's easy to wander. Uh, when we get frustrated, we get desperate, right? We go reaching for anything and everything. We get sidetracked. I mean, like the people in the story, we, we go looking for life. We go looking for security and satisfaction and things other than God. And before you know it, we'll start making decisions that we never would have imagined making. I mean, hard times have a way of revealing what's, what we really put our faith in and what's going on in our hearts. And I guess what I want to ask you is what has your attention this morning? What are you focused on? Who, who is the God of, of your life right now? And, and if it's not the Lord, if he's not your greatest priority, then what, what has happened to your faith? Are, are you moving towards God or are you moving away from him? Because things like money and possessions and our financial security, especially when you go through a difficult time like we've all been in, like it, it has a way of calling us back, you know? And, and so we react. We, we'll put our faith in, in money and what we can accumulate or how much we can save or what we can hold on to. Our, our career goals, our, our drive for success can become priority number one. You know, what can I achieve for myself? What, what can I accomplish? Politics can do it. Your, our our so-called constitutional rights can become our our idol, self-preservation. You know, when things get hard, I'm just going to bring my family together. We're going to lock ourselves up and we're just going to, we're just going to, you know, hope that this, you know, all goes away. We, we can waste away so quickly on the inside when we, when we fall at, uh, into an addiction. And, and there are so many things that, that can grab hold of us that we need freedom from. We're not much different than the people in the story. Because it's so easy to turn to other things for satisfaction, to mask the pain, a false hope that everything's going to be okay. It's easy to drift. We forget about God. I don't trust him. We, we go looking to other things to do for us what only God was intended to do. And the truth is that nothing can help us like God. There's no one who can deliver, lead us through provide for us in the ways that we need to be provided for like our God. Nothing can quench the thirst of your soul like God. And I wonder how many of you this morning feel like you're in a drought right now. You know, whether it be a drought in life, whether it be a drought in marriage, whether it be a drought in your career, your faith journey, and you say, you know what, I'm tired, I'm angry, I'm worn out, I'm disappointed, and I'm frustrated. Here's what I know. Here's the good news for us today, that while false gods can cause a drought in our soul, 
the one true God satisfies us with living water. And that living water has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he satisfies us like no one can. And I mean, he is the one who can quench the greatest thirst that you and I have. And as Elijah made it his mission to call people back to God, I'm just praying and believing and trusting that God could use me this morning to tell someone here that you can turn back to God today. That today, right now, in this room and in this place can mark the moment that you turn back to the Lord. That you get your eyes back on God. That He becomes your full focus and your attention and the Lord and God of your life once again. All right, because He is worth it. Jesus is worth it. You know, he, he is everything and all that we need. There is nothing more satisfying, you know. There, there is nothing more satisfying, anything in your, that you might ever experience than Jesus Christ alone. He has not abandoned you. Uh, he has not forgotten about you. Uh, he has not stopped caring for you. He still loves you like Jesus. He is greater than your biggest fear and your greatest fear right now. Uh, Jesus Christ is more powerful than your greatest concerns. And he is certainly greater than your biggest secret, the worst sin that you've ever committed. And it doesn't matter how far you've fallen, what you've done, or how far you've wandered. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, because of Christ, you can turn back to him today. And how do we know this to be true? Well, as Elijah prepared this sacrifice on the altar to prove God's faithfulness, the greater sacrifice is the one that God gave when he hung his very own son on the cross. And Jesus died for our failures, and he died for our greatest fears, he died for our rebellion, and he died for all of our sin. And the greatest miracle is that God raised him to life, and Jesus walked out of the tomb, and he proved for us once and for all that he had defeated the power of sin and death for every single one of us. And his resurrection proves that you and I, that anyone here today, that you can turn back to God. I, I want to read for you just a few verses from Psalm 103. If you've been reading in your reading plan, you would have read Psalm 103 earlier this week. These are the words of David. I'm not going to read all of it, but I pray that by the power of Jesus Christ, you might hear these in your life today. David writes this, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? Who satisfies us? Who satisfies your desires with good things? The Lord. It's the Lord. He goes on to say, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, praise Jesus, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us let's pray father we thank you for your grace and for your love for your patience and that when we confess our sins god that you are faithful and righteous and that you cleanse us
and we are made whole. Father, I pray that right now in this place and through your spirit, that today might be a day of people turning their hearts back to you. Father, forgive us from from wandering. Forgive us for drifting. You are the God above all. You are the Lord, our God. We are turning our eyes to you, turning our hearts to you. Don't let anything hold you back today. Maybe you've got something you need to say to the Lord, something you need to confess to the Lord today. He will welcome you back. He's a God who redeems. He's a God who heals. He's the only one that can satisfy us. For some of you here today, you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today can be the day. You can come back to God. You can can turn to God. You can find faith in God. He can save you today and give you salvation and forgiveness and life. Would you open up your heart and your life to him right now? Just pray, Lord Jesus, I want you to be a part of my life. Forgive me of my sins. I belong to you. God, thank you. Thank you for your healing work. We are turning our hearts to you. We need you. Heal this land. Use us, Lord. Use Genesis to bring light to this community and the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.